close our eyes and bow our heads for those in person and those joining us online. Let's pray together. God, we thank you today for doctors, nurses, health professionals, medical professionals. We, we thank you for them. I can't imagine what the five-month grind has been like. We pray for them, that you will give them what they need each day. And we look to you as the great physician and thank you, God, for the many ways you were offering both a cure and also healing to people throughout our world and for those that you were using to do that. We give you thanks. I pray today, God, for teachers, school administrators, those who are on staff at the schools throughout Shelby County and beyond in the Mid-South. We pray for them. We pray for parents and students that you give them wisdom in this time. We're, we're navigating a re-entry season that we've never had to experience before, and maybe we, we never will again. And we, just, we need your Holy Spirit to bless those people, especially those connected to our church. God, we pray for those working at grocery stores, restaurants, for all they have done and are doing for us. God, we pray for employees, employers, for those who retired, for those old and young, God, you are the only hope we have to unite us and keep us together in this time. And we pray for you to work your wonders in us and around us. And we offer this up in the power of the name of Jesus and the whole church said, amen. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us in person. It's great to see your faces. For those of you joining us online, thank you for joining us. Thanks for being with us. I want to begin with a movie that came out in 1981 called Chariots of Fire. How many of you here, just a show of hands, how many of you have seen the movie? It came out in 1981, so I was only one when it came out, so I didn't watch it when it came out. But later on in life, I did see it. It's a movie about two Olympic uh, runners. And there's, a, there's this one scene where one of the Olympians, he's, he's, a, uh, he's a sprinter. He just runs 100 meters. I say just. He runs 100 meters. And he, he has this confession at one point in the movie where he says he does not like to run. Like, this is not fun for him. It's not the love of his life, but he's like an addict. This is all he's ever known. And there's this one moment in the movie where this guy is about to run, and here's what he says. He says, contentment. I'm 24 years old, and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence, but will I? And that first line of that quote gets me every time. Contentment. I'm 24 years old. And I've never known it. Because I bet there are people watching us online and in person today, and many people we know who would say the same thing. Contentment, I'm 25 and I've never known it. Or contentment, I'm 60 and I've never known it. Or I'm 80 and I've never, I've never known it. The film director for the movie Chariots of Fire, Sidney Pollack, to the day he died, he offered up an interview right before he died, and he made this confession that almost all of his life, he had been driven by the need to achieve, and it, it justified his entire existence, like he did not know how to slow down in life. So he would finish a project, 
and was grateful for what the project would do and the money it would bring in. But the moment he would finish one project, he felt like he needed to jump into another project, never able to slow down to enjoy family or to enjoy life. So here's what I want to do today. We're in a four-week series called Failing Gods. I'm talking about forms of idolatry in our hearts, in our nation, in our world. And, and these forms of idolatry aren't just forms that have to be removed. They need to be replaced, not replacing idols with other idols, but replacing idols with something of substance, something of faith. So today I want to talk about passion and ambition and achievement and success and contentment. And I want to talk about contentment in a way where contentment is not the absence of passion and ambition. Contentment is knowing that who we are in God and through that putting everything else in its rightful place. So to do this, I want you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. There are a couple of places in Paul's letters where Paul gets kind of autobiographical. He's fairly narrative. And in Philippians 3, apparently there are some people who have come into the churches of Philippi and they're disrupting the unity and they're robbing people of joy. And a lot of these people seem to be coming into the church saying things like, hey, you need to listen to what I have to say because look at all I've accomplished in my life. Look at my long resume. Look at everything, all my trophies. And and like, you need to listen because of everything we've been able to do. And it's like Paul says, hey, there are these people coming into your churches in Philippi, and here's what they're doing, and if they want to play that game, I'll play that game too. So in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, here's what it says. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. This isn't Paul saying, maybe I have more. This is Paul saying, if you want to throw down this way, I'll throw down this way and watch how I'm going to win. So Paul's going to let, it, let him have it. From Philippians 3 verse 4 all the way through 6, so two and a half verses, Paul's about to lay out this resume, his achievements, his trophy closet. Look at everything I've accomplished. And he begins with this. Paul begins by saying, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So he's an eighth dayer. So this is Paul's way of saying, I wasn't just circumcised around the eighth day, but I was circumcised on the eighth day as the law requires. So for Paul to make this statement, Paul, an eight-day-old infant doesn't get to make many choices on their own, right? There's no infant at eight days old who says to its parents, hey, you know what? I would like to be circumcised today. So if you're circumcised on the eighth day, it's not because you decided it. It's because you have parents who are committed to the law. So this is Paul's way of saying, look, I'm not someone who just embraced this way of life over the last couple of years. Like there are generations of success, generations of privilege that have, been, that have existed in my life. His parents were committed to a law to a T, circumcised on the eighth day. Paul says, of the people of Israel. It's Paul's way of saying Look, I wasn't converted to this way of life. This is my bloodline. This is what I've known all of my life. I am of the people of Israel. And then Paul takes it to a whole nother level. I'm of the people of Israel and I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul can go back on his family lineage all the way to the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was a small tribe, yet it was greatly respected. The first anointed king, the first appointed king by God was King Saul, who was of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin, or Benjamin, who was the 12th son of Jacob. So in Genesis 49, where Jacob lays in all these blessings on his 12 sons, when he gets to Benjamin, what he says is, Benjamin is going to be a ravenous wolf. 
So this is said in a positive tense. Jacob didn't bless all of his children in a positive way. This was. And this would come true in the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin would be known. They would have a a high post in the army. They were known as warriors, courageous, bold, deeply loyal, would defend their people. And when you think about the way Saul, who would then become Paul, lived his life, he was bold, courageous, deeply loyal, defended the way of life. He was of the people of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. So Paul, growing up in Tarsus, would have known other languages, would have known other uh, cultures. Yet what he's saying is, even though I know a lot of stuff and I've been educated in the ways of society around us, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, born and raised. This is all he's ever known. He didn't jump on the bandwagon. He didn't just recently choose to become like in this way of life. This is, I mean, generations after generations, this is what he's known. And then Paul says just a few more things. Where Paul talks about, as for zeal, persecuted the church. As, for to, as to the law, he's a Pharisee. As to righteousness, faultless. This is Paul, and even talking about a Pharisee here, it's kind of in a positive sense. It's a title of honor. The word Pharisee shows up 99 times in the New Testament. This is the only time outside of the Gospels or the book of Acts the word Pharisee is used. And a Pharisee was one who was committed to the law of God. Even if it could become forms of legalism, committed to righteousness and the ways of God. And Paul just lays out this resume. So you may look at what Paul says in Philippians 3, 4 through 6, and you may not be very impressed. But if you lived in Philippi at the time, and you had any connection to Judaism or the church, and you saw this list of resumes and accomplishments and achievements, you would be very impressed. Like, oh my goodness, Paul is, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. We knew there was something so courageous about him. They would, they would be really impressed by this. So before we go on to something else, let's talk just a moment about achievement, accomplishments, about success. Because you may read Philippians 3, 4 through 6, and you may hear something about achievement and think, You've achieved and you've succeeded in some ways too. And some of you may, may hear this and you're like, I don't know what worth is in my life. I don't know if there have been many accomplishments or achievements. Now, for those of us who have had them, they can easily become gods if they are not harnessed or leveraged in the right kind of way. And for those of you who don't feel like you have succeeded much in your life, wanting to succeed can sometimes become just as much of a god as if you get what you want. And here Paul just lays out this list of his resume, accomplishments, accolades, his reputation. Now, God has created us with ambition. God has created us with desires. God has created us to be driven. Those things have to be harnessed in the right way, leveraged in the right way. Tim Keller says this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, when an idol gets a grip on your heart, It spins out a whole set of false definitions of success and failure and happiness and sadness. It redefines reality. Anything that gets in the way of it is by definition bad. In the end, idols can make it possible to call evil good and good evil. 
One way to think about this is how we move goalposts in our lives. Like sometimes we set up a goalpost and we think, if I ever get to this point right here, then I'll be satisfied. Then I will have fulfillment. Whether it's a goalpost in a relationship or a goalpost with a career or a goalpost with the size of a house or the car you want to drive, whatever it may be. But then we get there. We hit the salary we wanted. We get there and then the goalpost moves because we get there and it's not enough. We want something else. When is enough enough? So if you're taking notes today, I just want you to write this down. Until God is enough, nothing else will be. Until Jesus is enough, nothing else will be. Mary Bell says this, Achievement is the alcohol of our time. Achievement is a drug. It's like you become an addict. So here's the move that I want some of us to catch today that is one of the hardest moves of maturity in the spiritual life that many people cannot make. And it's the move from verse 6 to verse 7 in Philippians 3. And there are many people who can make this move by reciting verse 7, but they can't make this move by letting their heart live into verse 7. Because after laying out this resume and achievements and accomplishments and accolades and the lineage that Paul is connected to, he says this in chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. For reading of the word, the whole church said, Amen. Amen. Here, Paul lays out, like, there's no longer religion except through the Spirit. There's no longer power or reputation except through Christ. There's no longer boasting in human achievement, but boasting in what God has done. This is Paul's way of standing on the rooftop and shouting to the whole world, saying, you can get anything in this world you want, but if you don't have Christ, you have nothing. People can profit in all different ways in the world, but if not Christ, there's nothing. And if with Christ, you cannot lose. If you have Christ, you cannot lose. And the way Paul does this in verse 7 is Paul uses financial language. It's about profits and gains and losses. And the gains that Paul talks about in verse 7 is plural. The loss is singular. Paul acknowledges there have been a lot of gains in my life. For many of us, there are a number of gains and successes, and there's just one loss. And this isn't Paul saying that none of those things exist in my life anymore. They are a part of who Paul is, but Paul has now been able, through Christ, to put them in its rightful place. So one way to think about this is, is if Paul, in us, we need to look at some of these things and say, you're going to be in my life, right? You're not going to leave, but you're not going to have control of my life anymore. You're going to be in my life, but I'm not swearing allegiance to you. And most people get stuck in between verse 6 and verse 7. 
unable to let them, their hearts move to this place of contentment. Many of the things we set our heart on benefiting us can ultimately be the very things that destroy us, whether it's people, wealth, career. So today, through God, give up gains in order to get the ultimate gain. There's one well-known artist. This person's been around for decades. And in one interview, they said this. I'm not going to tell you who this person is. This person said this. I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a, spirit, a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Does anybody want to guess who that is? It's Madonna. And I'm not encouraging you to go home and download all her albums and watch all her videos. But here's one of those most successful artists of our lifetime who talks about this overwhelming feeling of inadequacy and worth and mediocrity. So I came across a phobia a few years ago. I've talked about this some. I've written about it. And it's a fairly new phobia. It's a phobia called a tiki phobia. I think they say this, is, this phobia has only been around for 15, 10, 15, 20 years. It's fairly new, and it's really taken off with the younger generation. And a tiki phobia is a fear of failure and a fear of letting people down. So when you have a culture of achievement placed on people, at some point, some people don't want to, like the bar has been set so high. It's not that they don't care about ambition. It's that should I keep risking when if I fail, I'm going to let so many people down. Maybe it's letting parents down, teachers down, coaches down, whoever it may be. And when I first heard about this, this phobia, tiki phobia, I thought about the consequences of individuals who were overtaken by this. But then I, I took it to like a whole other level and thought about what happens if the church is overcome with a phobia like a tiki phobia, a fear of failure, a fear of letting people down. What happens is you get to a point where you no longer take risks anymore. And God wants us to embrace a kind of contentment that doesn't keep us from taking risks, but helps us to hold achievement and accomplishments and success all in the same context. So for me, around this time every year, I share this story both for myself and also just part of the journey. Like, you're a preacher. I would not be, be who I am if it wasn't from the summer that God encountered me in multiple ways after my sophomore year. My, my sophomore year was the furthest I've probably ever been away from God. I got caught up in numerous forms of intentional sin in my life. And I went to church camp the summer after my sophomore year. And it just happened that the topic of church camp is dealing with some of the things I was struggling with in my life. And about three weeks after church camp, I was kind of in this funk, not knowing if the power of the forgiveness of God could really cover me and accept me for all the things I had done in my life. 
And my sister came home from college, and she came, to my, she came into my room one night, and Jenny and I always had this close relationship where she could ask me questions about, and she did. She came in that night, and she just started asking me questions about my relationship with God, my prayer life, relationships in my life. And then she started asking questions about sin and things I was struggling with. So I found myself confessing some things to my sister. And Jenny looked at me, and she said, I've got some junk in my life, too. So here's what I think we need to do. We need to sit down with mom and dad tonight, and we need to confess some of our sins. And I joke about this, but this is exactly what I said to her. I'm not exaggerating, and I haven't exaggerated this story. I looked at her, and I said, Jenny, 16-year-olds do not confess sins to mom and dad. I'll be there to support you while you do, but I don't care to do that. So we went in the living room that night. It was my sister, me, my parents. We sat down. Jenny went first. She talked through some of her stuff, got it out there. My mother was a mess before it even got to me. And I remember sharing some of the things in my life. And through tears, I just got them out there. And I, I'll never forget it. My mom stood up and she left the room. And I thought she left the room because she was just so disappointed. She couldn't take it anymore. And it was about 15 seconds, which if you're in a moment like that, it felt like hours. Then my mom came back in with her Bible open to the Psalms. And my mother was a woman of prayer. And a lot of her prayer language came straight from the Psalms. So she just came in, like holding the Bible with one hand, and her other hand was ready just to start flipping through Psalms. And she stood over us and began to pray and declare Psalm 63, and then she would flip to Psalm 84, and then she would read and pray and declare a few verses, and then she would go to Psalm 103 about forgiveness, and then Psalm 51 about having a clean heart. And she was just flipping and praying, and it was the first time in my life I felt like I could open up my hands and receive the grace of God for what it is, the forgiveness of God for what it is. And I knew in that moment, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I just knew if there's a God who can love me through the things I've done, I'm going to serve that God for the rest of my life. And I look back on that as a moment when God moved me from a Philippians 3.6 to a Philippians 3.7. Because even at that point in my life, there have been some accomplishments and successes and numerous trophies and a nice resume of some things I've been able to do. Yeah, that summer I realized any gain in my life is nothing if I don't have Christ. Until God is enough, nothing else will be. So Paul ends Philippians with chapter 4. Now, one of the most quoted verses in the Bible is Philippians 4.13. But look at Philippians 4.11-13. Here's how Paul ends it. And Paul says this. I'm not saying this because I'm, I, I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in poverty or in want. I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. And I think if Paul were here today, what Paul would say is this, is you don't have to wait until you're 80 years old to try to live into this. This is available for you now. Learning to be content that God is enough. So if there's anyone here in person who maybe you just need somebody to pray over you, that maybe you're struggling to feel like you are enough in God 
or what you're worth is. We do have an elder available in room 100 right after this service to receive you and to pray over you. And for those of you in person or those of you watching online, we have a form. If you go to our website, right there on the website, there's a connect card. And there are places on there for you to check a box or fill out something for us to pray for. If you are interested in being baptized or just any way we can serve you. And right now, if you're at home, we're going to transition to communion. So if you have the bread and the cup nearby, if you want to go and get it, for those of you here in person, you have your little individual cups. And I want Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Words about contentment, about Jesus being enough. I want this to guide us at the table. As we take the bread and the cup, we are reminded Jesus has given it all. And as we take this today, I just want you to recite, just right there where you are, quietly where you are, God, you are enough. Jesus, you're enough. And until I believe that you're enough, nothing else will ever be enough. So let's pray together as we give God thanks for the bread and the cup. For God, this right here is what unites the church through any, any season of life that we go through. This is the story. This is where it happened. This is the beginning. This brought us all together in and through Jesus. So for everything you have accomplished through Jesus, we give you thanks. And we take this now, swearing all of our allegiance to the kingdom of God and to everything Jesus is. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.